So he didn't speak in words they couldn't understand. But he clearly laid it out for them in story form as to children. But they were dull of heart and deaf to his words of life. And even the disciples, those closest to him, questioned what he meant. Now, we are not like first century Israel, whose hearts have been hardened by God because of past disobedience. We, as Gentiles, have no history of refusing him when he called. It has been given to us to hear and to receive the message of the kingdom and to bring forth fruit. And in Matthew 21:43, he highlights this. Speaking to the Jews, he says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. This is so serious. God is a God of principles. Hear the heart of the Father here. The kingdom has been given to us to produce fruit. It has been taken from Israel for the moment because of their inability to produce fruit. Ergo, the kingdom can be given and it can be taken away. How we need to produce fruit, beloved, to show ourselves worthy of his election and calling. Look back at the history of the church and you will see the kingdom given and taken. Given and taken. Given and taken. Each time there is a new move of God, the kingdom is given afresh that fruit might come forth. If it doesn't, it's taken. It's given, it's taken. It's given, it's taken. How many, for instance, Wesleyan chapels have been converted into houses. The kingdom was given, but generations after Wesley proved themselves unable to bring forth fruit, and so God took it away, gave it to someone else. Did he give it to the Pentecostals? Did he give it to the Charismatics? Did he give it to the Renewal Movement? I'm just asking questions here. I'm not making a doctrine. Given and taken. We cannot afford to, to hold something of God and think we have all the answers. We must keep in vital relationship and union with him. Or we might find the kingdom taken away from us. And we might find... Ichabod written over our local church and we won't know for 10 years. We want to bring forth fruit and fruit that remains. God gave us free will in order that we might choose him and choose to obey him. He puts no pressure on us to do so. But every time we do, we improve the quality of the soil of our heart. The seed is good quality and it cannot fail to bear a crop. The question is, will it be 30, 
Will it be 60 or will it be a hundredfold? Just how receptive are you to God? If you're not top quality ground, then even top quality seed won't produce a hundredfold. It may only produce 60-fold, 30-fold or less. But all of this is incremental. Those who bear fruit, he prunes, so that they bear much more fruit, fruit that will last. So you might have borne 30-fold. And he says, oh, good, I'll come with my prunes, yes, and I'll cut you back. And you think, ouch, ouch, he's stripping me. But that's so that you might bring forth 60-fold. Ah! 60-fold return. Let's get those pruning shears out again. Cut it right down to the ground. And off it goes again. And this time it brings forth a hundredfold. Fruit that will last. And it's always possible to bring about a change that will cause your crop to increase. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 in the uh, NIV again. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation. We are living, beloved, in the time of God's unprecedented favour and grace. He is biased towards us. He is so biased. He is revealing himself in these days in unprecedented ways because the end is near. Salvation isn't a one-off experience. Your escape from the things of this world is an ongoing daily process which will continue until Jesus comes. You are saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. We should all be growing continuously and serving God where he's placed us. And this is not full-time Christian service, whatever that is. We are all full-time in the service of the King, whatever we are doing. Give it your best. Work to a standard of excellence for him. And there is no difference between the sacred and the secular. This has been such an erroneous belief that has developed in the church. I'm a Christian on Sunday and then Monday I have to go back to work. Well, of course, it's all different there. No, it isn't. Don't separate them, beloved. You are the light of Christ wherever you are. And one with God is a majority. As I sent out to you guys recently God has shown me that the, the amount of light that we show wherever we go because he is in us and around us is huge we like going to a dark room and we turn on the light wherever we are the amount of light is totally disproportionate even if we're just standing on a bus or a tube we are shining forth because of who is within us so there's no difference between the sacred and the secular. You just get to show who Jesus is in your daily work place. But don't get bound. <laughs> Go with the flow. So don't separate it. You're Christ whatever you are doing. You should be always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
The Lord has chosen to use us as his co-workers. What a privilege. Make sure you don't waste it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Start to store up those treasures in heaven right now, if you haven't already. That's Matthew 6, 19 and 20. And again in the NIV. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. There are crowns to be had, rewards and prizes to be collected on that day. So let's have a little look at foundations. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-10, again in the uh, NIV uh, 2010. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They will each be rewarded according to their own labour. For we are God's co-workers in God's service, you're God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. In this scripture, Paul makes it clear that there are rewards to be had. Not only do we belong to God, we are his field and his building. Paul says he didn't do everything, he laid the foundation, someone else watered, but another built on it. There comes a time when you try to help someone, you do your best, you pray with them, you counsel them, you speak with them, you prophesy over them, but at the end of the day it's up to them. You are responsible for your own growth and maturity. Here then, the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. Jesus has just spent three chapters talking about the changes that had occurred because of his arrival. Prefacing each section with, you've heard, but I say to you. This is a pivotal time in the history of Israel. You've heard this, 613 laws, but I say to you. He's telling them there is a complete change coming now. I'm giving you something completely different. And he ends his discourse with this parable of the wise and the foolish builders. In the Middle East in Jesus' times, there were two ways of building a house. You could put stones down first and then add mud bricks, or you could put mud bricks down first and put stones on top. Guess which one would stand when the floods came? Whose house would be undermined and washed away? So he tells them a story which is very easy for them to understand, again relating to their ability to hear and act on what he's been saying. In actual fact, there's something very interesting about these parables. If you go into the rabbinic parables, you will find very similar ones to the ones that Jesus told. So what he was doing was rewriting the parables that the people already knew, because he was a rabbi, totally in the culture of his time. So those who are listening now, this is not new to them, he's just saying, You've heard Fred down the road tell you like this, but I'm telling you it like this. So here we are, Matthew seven twenty four to 27 New American Standard this time. 
It sets it up two foundations. Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it didn't fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Books full of notes, information, even revelation will stay on the page unless they become truth in your experience. Hearing and acting must go together to produce the transformation. And we each have our own responsibility to build on that foundation which we've been given. It's our salvation is the foundation because we believed on Jesus. It's the beginning, not the end. And it's ongoing. And the superstructure is not in the hands of teachers or preachers, it's in the hands of the individual. It's called personal responsibility. Every builder should be engaged on building on the foundation that's been laid and everyone should be careful how they build. If you look in the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that everyone repaired the wall outside his own house. Didn't go interfering with somebody else's wall. 1 Corinthians 3, 11-15, again in the New International Version. For no one can lay any foundation than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. The whole issue of how we live this present life is a New Testament teaching that is directly related to the internal, eternal inheritance. Colossians 3, 24, New King James Version. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. For we serve the Lord Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, New American Standard. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Ultimately you will stand on that day without anyone, without being able to point a finger at anyone. You alone will be responsible for the reward you receive. Your reward or lack of it will be based on what you did in your earthly body. It will be based on how well you did with your own talent or talents. And by that, I don't mean money. The Parable of the Talents, Matthew 25, 14-23 For the kingdom of heaven is like a man travelling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. 
and to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five. And likewise he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his lord's money. After a long time the lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So to he who had received five talents came and brought five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And the parables in Matthew 24:42 to 25:46 all relate to the end times and Jesus' return and what his servants have been doing with their time while they waited for him. And the parables are the thief in the night, the faithful and the unfaithful servant, the ten virgins, the talents and the sheep and the goats. So you've got all these parables saying this is what it's going to be like. This is what's going to happen at the end of the time. This is what you need to know about what you're doing with your time while you wait. And in context, Jesus had been answering the questions of his disciples about when he will return and what the signs will be. And the parable he tells talks of the unexpectedly long delay in his coming and what his servants did while they were waiting. So the theme is about watching and waiting for his return and occupying, as the King James says it, until he comes. In this parable Jesus talks about waiting well and a return on his investment and what the disciples reward will be because he wants to give a reward for faithful service. If I have received five talents the Lord will expect from me a five talent return on his investment. If you have received one you will not be expected to give a five talent return. God isn't unjust. He gives each of us, he says, in another parable, he gives to each abilities. He says to him, doesn't it? According to each his own ability. He will give you talents according to your ability to produce the return. He gives us tools to do the job. He's an equal opportunities employer. I thought that was lovely when he showed me that. But the last servant in the parable, remember he's talking to the Jews here, didn't actually know the Lord and he thought he was a harsh master so he buried his talent. But the faithful servants who have various talents have various rewards including rulership conferred on them. Jesus spoke much about the whole issue of rewards. Paul speaks often of crowns, rewards and inheritance. And as already stated, the whole subject of rewards is very closely connected with the subject of inheritance in the eternal sense. 
So you could substitute the word inheritance for reward or crown because both of these are laid up for you in heaven, 1 Peter 1.4. Your inheritance is secure. It's there, set aside for you. Remember the two staircases. God has already got a plan for the things that you need to be walking in to get the reward. He set it aside. You don't have to earn it. You only have to ensure that you don't waste it, trade it or lose it in some way. As we saw last month, the only possibility here is loss of reward by walking up the wrong staircase. Take a breather. <laughs> this isn't a threat. But it may be a timely reminder that there are rewards to be had. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He loves to give. He wants to give. He has rewards for you. So you may just need to take this word as a mid-course correction. Should you find that you're traveling in the wrong direction or doing things that are unprofitable in the kingdom and which may be, turn out to be wood, hay and stubble on that day. 1 Corinthians three, twelve to 15 Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Emphasis mine. But he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. No doubt about your salvation. As Roger Price puts it, do you want a mud hut or a palace? So let's just have a look now at how you can ensure a reward on that day. We don't want to be those who produce works that burn up. We want something that will endure. So, ensuring our reward. And what I'm about to say next is absolutely obvious. You must be in fellowship with God before you can produce good works for God. No one ever produced works which attracted an eternal reward when not walking in the light. So daily cleansing of our feet before God is very important. The rest of you is clean. It's only in your daily walk that you get your feet dirty, that you miss the mark. That's what sin is. That's how you, and this is how you wash your spiritual feet. 1 John 1 8 to 10 in the message. If we claim that we're free from sin, we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. On the other hand, if we admit our sins, make a clean breast of them, he won't let us down, he'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. If we claim that we've never sinned, we out and out contradict God, make a liar out of him. A claim that only shows off our ignorance to God. You know, when I was a young Christian, I tripped over 1 John 1 9 in the NIV, and it said uh, about uh, confessing your sins and faithful and just to cleanse and forgive. And I said to the Lord, I don't sin. If I do, you'll have to show me. Oh, 
because I had had no teaching on 1 John 1 9 and he probably showed me and that was where I learned probably six months into my Christian walk how to keep my fleet clean because it's the only part of me that gets dirty every day so we make it a habit don't we to do a review of every day at the end of the day and we keep short accounts with God and with others if we've lost our rag we ask forgiveness of God and if necessary we make restitution we ask Father how we could have done things differently said things differently we make sure we don't hold grudges or walk in unforgiveness we don't let the sun go down on our anger we don't fester and get bitter over things and we make sure that we're harder on ourselves than on anyone else because in that way we will make speedy progress. Correct me severely and deal with me ruthlessly is a prayer that I pray all the time. I want to make speedy progress. I've only got one shot at this, you know, and probably very little time left. And I want to accelerate so much that all you see is a puff of dust and mind the checks if you feel a check in your spirit about doing something don't do it draw back this is another way you'll make very swift progress don't go on in the face of the Holy Spirit's warning that way leads to disaster and believe me I didn't read that in a book either so make it your business to live in Proverbs 3 5 to 12 and again I'm using the message trust in God from the bottom of your heart don't try to figure everything out on your own listen for God's voice in everything you do everywhere you go he's the one who will keep you on track don't assume you know it all run to God run from evil your body will glow with health your very bones will vibrate with life Honour God in everything you own. Give him the first and the best. Your bars will burst. Your vats will brim over. But don't, dear friends, resent God's discipline. Don't sulk under his loving correction. It's the child God loves that God corrects. Arthur's delight is behind all this. It's quite remarkable what we're promised if we will trust him and follow him, isn't it? And then, bless those who are speaking against you and rejecting you. You are storing up heavenly rewards. Do not return like for like, flesh with flesh, beloved. Matthew 5.44, Amplified, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When your good is evil spoken of, and it will be, be sure that you keep your mouth shut and your heart open to God. Develop the art of forgiving and forgetting. And if you're hurt, get healed because you'll be hurt again. Love keeps no record of wrongs or rights come to that. Just exactly why do you need to stand up for your rights? So that you can call attention to them? So that you can be justified in the eyes of men? Let God be your vindicator. People may lie about you and others may believe those lies. You just be sure you bless them and ask the Lord that he may not lay that sin to their charge on that day. You could have cleared your name, but you didn't. God likes that. 
Your silence, beloved, was golden. You just built something which endures by not saying a word. There is an awful lot to be said in favour of being dumb sometimes. What comes out of your mouth, mouth or not is so important because the enemy wants to use your voice. Dissension and factions, gossip and evil speaking. The enemy wants hatred to have a voice. Don't let it be yours, beloved. We have no enemy but Satan. Unbelievers and other Christians, Muslims and Islamists are not our enemies. Satan wants to use your voice. He wants your criticism, your bitterness and resentment, your hatred to be verbalized in order that he can use it for his purposes. Guard your heart, beloved. It's the wellspring of life. Don't let your mouth be the springboard for his oppression of another. And then there is selfish ambition. A high profile here, R.T. Kendall observes, will mean nothing in heaven. Make sure you're ambitious only to please the Father. Jeremiah 45.5 in the King James Version. I'm losing the King James because it was the King James that God spoke to me from many years ago. And you'll understand what he was saying to me when I quote this. And seekest thou great things for thyself, Beryl? Seek them not. A timely warning for Baruch, a Jeremiah's scribe, and it was a timely warning for me. The temptation for earthly recognition is a high one and it's a snare. A high profile below is ominous. Sometimes people will notice what you do. But if you're not actually seeking recognition now, you will receive a reward on that day. Sometimes God does allow recognition. The question is, did you seek it? And if you did, how did you receive it? Did you give the glory silently back to him whilst thanking the person concerned? Or did you put a feather in your own cap, allow yourself a pat on the back, if you did, you've had your reward. You won't get a crown on that day. You've already had your reward. If you silently gave him the glory by your gracious response, there's a reward. People pr will praise you and thank you on days, but it's where the honour rests that's important. Do you take it for yourself or do you give it to him? If you can notch up the number of words of knowledge you've given, the number of prophetic words you've given. Could it just be that you're taking some glory there for yourself? Just a thought. Jesus had something to say about pleasing men too and what they considered to be important. He's quite stringent about this. Luke 16:15 in the Amplified. But he said to them, You are the ones who declare yourselves just and upright before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted and highly thought of among men is detestable and abhorrent and abomination in the sight of God. Why? Because it's their flesh. And anything done in the flesh stinks, beloved. It stinks. And then there's the issue of judgment. 
His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways and this is why we should leave all judgment to God. Just stop measuring yourself and those around you. If you're still critical of them, if you're measuring the speed at which they are moving, and that always means that you're measuring because you think you're moving faster, there is more work to be done. You don't yet have the mind of Christ. And then we come to a ticklish one. Motives in ministry. There are three basic motives in ministry. The first is what I call the ministry of self-interest. The second, ministry to others. And the third, the ministry of the Father through you. The principle is that God doesn't merely examine what is accomplished by us, but he examines the attitudes and the motivations behind what's accomplished. What was the underlying motive for your doing what you did? Philippians 2, 19-21, New American Standard. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. They're doing things, but they're not doing them in the name of, they might be doing it in the name of Jesus, but they're not doing it with the right motive. In other versions, he says, I've no one like-minded who will care for your state, to describe Paul's concern. And this is an indictment. And it's an indictment to the church in this day too. Paul could find no one who really, genuinely concerned or cared about others. No one with a servant heart except young Timothy. And you can feel his heart breaking as he describes how pervasive self-interest was in the ministry. He'd said it before in Philippians, some preach Christ out of their own motives, but whatever happens, Christ is preached. Even in the first century church, they were all seeking their own interests, not of those of Christ Jesus. They couldn't help it. They were operating as we do today in the eros self-love. And I believe this year we will be going on to study what it means to be walking in eros and walking in agape and how we can switch and become that which Christ Jesus died for us to become. So then there's the uh, motive of self-interest or self-serving. And this is an extremely serious and sensitive area, beloved, because we're self-serving self is absolutely rife in the body of Christ because we've got no idea how to agape one another. And service within the church is often with a hidden agenda, a hook. And the agenda is this. I need to find my place to fulfill my calling, to operate in my gift, to fulfill my ministry, my vision. Thus we use people to help us fulfill what we see as our calling, our vision, our church, 
We are no longer stewards of the gift and calling of God, but we have become owners. And people are the means to an end. I do recognise that this is a tough pill to swallow. I've had to swallow it myself first. May it please the Lord to cause us to examine ourselves regarding why we do what we do for the Lord. May it bring us to a place of honest self-examination of our motives and repentance, change of mind, if it's necessary. Beloved of God, the truth when it first comes is almost always negative. If there's something in this for you, you will be rising up right now. So watch your own reactions at this point. If you are reacting to that statement, I need to find my place, fulfill my calling, operate in my gift. Watch your own reactions, God speaking to you. And then there's the ministry to others, which sounds nice, but it's actually soulish compassion. There's something called soulish compassion, sympathy, which does things for people in its own strength and ability. Perceiving what it sees to be the need and seeking itself to be the answer, it conveys both false hope and at the same time it directs people to a false centre, focusing them as it does on itself rather than on Jesus as the all-sufficient one. In the long term, this often develops into an ungodly dependence of one person upon another to the point of codependency in some cases, both needing to provide the other with an identity and both unable to live without the shoring up of the other one. This type of compassion issues from a soul that will eventually be bankrupted. It bankrupts us. We end up angry with the very people we say we love, who we now see as taking us for a ride or are in our face. It finally ends up in burn up and burn out. And burn out is a sure sign of someone working from their unredeemed, soulish passion and zeal rather than from the ease and overflow of the agape of God working through them. And again, I didn't read this in a book. All of what I'm saying today, God has put me through the fire of. I speak from a place of being aware of my own self. So ultimately, soulish compassion masquerading as a big heart or concern for others is selfish and motivated by Eros because it sees itself as being the answer. Many times I've heard believers cry out to the Lord, use me Lord, use me Lord, only to hear them say later, I feel used. Mother Teresa, that great saint, said it was not her compassion that caused her to help the poor but the call of God on her life. She saw everyone she served as Jesus. Again, it's the exchanged life, his life through you, which allows the Father to move as he desires. And it is this that ultimately reaps a rich, eternal reward and an incorruptible crown.
And then there's the issue of people pleasing. This could be one of the biggest and most common traps in the body of Christ and it arises from a deep rejection, low self-esteem and lack of identity. And as a result, we do what we do to please people, to bring their, bring their approval. We do things for them so that we will get acceptance. We don't know who we are. This is not a condemnation, beloved. But what we're doing is things that have no enduring reward. Simply because we need to gain the approval of the pastor or whoever it is. The scenario is you're approached by the leadership perhaps to fill a position and at first you feel flattered and pleased you've been noticed. As time goes on you feel nobody sees or knows the work you put in week after week as indeed they do not. He doesn't even give you a nod as he goes by on Sunday. The truth is he simply needed a body to do that particular job and you look the most likely. It isn't the fault of the pastor beloved. We cannot labour for the approval of people. What did Jesus say? You labour for the approval of men. And it's an abomination to God. It's the flesh. Everything we do must be done for an audience of one if we are to obtain the prize. You can wait at tables, wash floors and clean toilets and be happy to be unnoticed if you're doing it to the glory of God and an audience of one. No task is too menial for you because it's the Lord Christ you're serving. You see an example of this in Stephen in Acts 6, 1 to 6. Men full of the Holy Spirit. And he was just about qualified to wait on the tables along with a few of his friends. You see now, beloved of God, why all this is such a level playing field. It applies to each and every one of us. None of us is exempt from the least to the greatest. You can clearly see why we need to examine ourselves. And it may surprise you that all these things that I've just spoken about are what the superstructure is. That is what constitutes what you're building on your foundation. Are you building faithfulness and resilient love? Are you absorbing the faults that you perceive in others in a priestly function rather than finding fault and criticising them? Are you moving in obedience, in acts of kindness and generosity? Every time you do these things, you'll build something eternal that will last when it's passed through the fire on that day. All of them spring from the new heart that Father has given us. Have you ever thought of uh, maybe perhaps keeping £20 back from your tithe and keeping it in your pocket until the time when God says, give that person £20? And you go up to a complete stranger and you say, not I want you to have this, but Father loves you have this just a thought so finally we come to the ministry of the father through us and this is the ideal and we're all on the journey to this place 
this is our process this is where we're coming 30 60 100 fold wherever we are at the minute remember you're going to get pruned if you're shown fruit you're going to get cut hard back so this is our process coming to the place where we allow father to minister through us 30 60 100 fold in him alone can we meet and overcome the condition of the people around us and continue to flourish undaunted without exhaustion or burnout. As we become more and more aware of the aching heart of the Father and his insistence that his life be lived through us, we begin to see Father's house, the kingdom established around us. It's the exchanged life, his life in place of your life, which allows Father to move and love through you as he desires. Jesus came to put a face on the Father. We are here to put a face on Jesus. Romans 11, 35 and 36 in the Amplified. Or who has first given God anything that he might be paid back, or that he could claim a recompense for from him and through him and to him? are all things for all things originate with him and come from him all things live through him and all things center in and tend to consummate and to end in him to him be glory forevermore amen so be it so the disciples reward i love this uh, subtitle of this bit is or what's in it for us Matthew nineteen twenty seven and 28 in the New American Standard then Peter said to him behold we've left everything and followed you what then will there be for us <laughs> and Jesus said to them truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Good old Peter. He can be counted on to ask the $65,000 question, what's in it for us? And Jesus so gently and lovingly tells him, you'll judge with me on my throne. You haven't left anything that I haven't clocked and you'll get your reward. What an awesome reward. And what about us then? Well, know you not that you will judge the angels? 1 Corinthians 6 3, Amplified. Do you not know that we also, Christians, are to judge the very angels and pronounce opinion between right and wrong for them? How much more then as to matters pertaining to this world and of this life only? Paul is castigating the Corinthians because they're taking each other to court. Right, let's move on then to the Judgment of Believers works. And again, 1 Corinthians three twelve to 15, New American Standard. Now, if any man builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. 
If any man's work which is built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. The day is coming when the Lord Jesus shall descend from heaven and take us to be with him eternally. The rapture of the church. And after that, he'll have a little look at what we've done in our physical bodies with our time here on planet Earth. Our superstructure. This is the beamer seat of, of God, as opposed to the great white throne. Again, I emphasize that it's not us who will be judged. That took place in, on the cross in Jesus. What will be judged is our works, our fruit production. What fruit did we allow to grow in our lives? 30, 60 or 100 fold increase on that seed. He will be looking to see just how much he can give us to reign and rule over. And the Father only recognises in us what he sees of the Son. There's no judgment of sin here. It was all dealt with by Jesus on the cross. So let's have a look to see what's in store for us. Matthew 25:21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Emphasis mine. So we got joy for a start. Matthew twenty five twenty three. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Emphasis mine. Ah, responsibility. We've proved ourselves faithful and reliable in the little things of life. We're honest. We have integrity. We've proved out. If we say we'll do something, we do it. And here's the reward put in charge of many things. Luke nineteen seventeen, and he said to him, well done good slave because you've been faithful in a very little thing you are to be an authority over ten cities Woo-hoo. and authority reigning and ruling. We've asked for and received wisdom in our time here we've proved ourselves to be competent to be put in charge of the master's precious possessions. Now we are given authority because we can be relied on to judge righteous judgments. On that day, our production is going to be judged at what is known as the Bema seat or the judgment seat of believers' works. Jesus himself will be sitting as judge and it's as a judge used to sit at an athletics meeting. Remember Paul spoke of the things that he saw and in Roman times the judge would sit there and assess how well each participant had done in the race the discus thrower, the javelin thrower, those running in the sprint, and he'd hand out the prizes. So that's why Paul so often refers to us being in a race and why he speaks of prizes. He spoke of what he knew. And then there's crowns. The crown was among the Romans and Greeks Greeks, a symbol of both victory and of reward. The crown or wreath worn by the victors in the Olympic Games was made of leaves of the wild olive. In the Pythian Games it was made of laurel. In the Nemean Games it was made of parsley. And in the Isthmian Games it was made of pine. And the Romans bestowed a civic crown on anyone who saved the life of a citizen. And that was made of oak leaves. 
In opposition to all these fading crowns, the Apostle speaks of the incorruptible crown. He speaks of the crown of life, James 1.12, Revelation 2.1, the crown that fades not away, 1 Peter 5.4, the crown of glory, 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of righteousness, all of which we can then throw at the feet of Jesus to his lasting glory. 2 Corinthians 5.10 in the New American Standard For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. So our works fall into two categories. They're either good works carried out in the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit or they are works produced by our flesh in which case they're worthless and we'll all have a degree of mixture in our bags. Some of our works will have originated from the flesh, whilst others will be inspired of the Spirit. They'll be all mixed up. It's whatever we allow God to produce through us, as I've already said, that will last for eternity, and which will govern the level of reward together with our level of dominion, our reigning and ruling. Matthew seven twenty-one to 23 in the message says this, Knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. I can see it now. At the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, master, we preached the message. We bashed the demons. Our God-sponsored project said everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. <clears throat> you may be more familiar with this passage as, uh, as then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What Jesus is saying here is that he's never been intimately acquainted with the people who say they've done things for him. They've cast out demons, they've prophesied, they've held their meetings, but self-promotion has been at the centre and he clearly says only those who do the will of the Father, being obedient to his words and will, are going to get the recognition and reward they desire. And those who practice lawlessness, let's bring that right down to the bottom line. I had a brilliant example of this the other day. You're on a diet and you're accountable to each other because you want to keep on the straight and narrow and the one person says, I fancy a walnut whip. Now you're both on a diet, you're accountable to each other and the other one says, I will if you will. What have they both done? Lawlessness. They've said they're going to do one thing and they've ended up doing another. Don't encourage someone else off of the path that they're trying to keep you on by your accountability. Lawlessness. It's brought right down. Right down to our bodily appetites. Oh, hesitate to say this one. I've never committed adultery. 
What you mean is that you've never been with another woman or another man to the point of penetration. But you may have had oral sex. You've committed adultery. Write down, bottom line, we need to know, beloved. We need to know. So lawlessness, as I said, sounds like a serious word, but it literally means those who reject the will of God and substitute their own will. And what you do in your own will and strength will have no eternal reward. It's the same message. Don't call someone else to stumble. Don't do it, beloved. Don't do it. There's enough stumbling that we do on our own without pulling someone else down with ourselves. So in order that this doesn't come as a shock on that day, God's very kindly showing us only those things done on this earth in your mortal body which were at his behest, in obedience to him and his word, that will receive a reward. And this is what we're aiming for. So don't go down the tubes if you're not there right now. This word is so that you can make a mid-course correction if you need to. All those years you paid your tithe and it hurt. It cost you and no one knew but you and God. All those trials you suffered and you kept your mouth shut, shut up to God. That person you totally forgave but you kept quiet about it, you didn't noise it abroad. The time you never spoke up for yourself but you let God vindicate you if he so choose, chose. The person you faithfully helped year in, year out, no one knew about it but you and God. Each will be rewarded according to his own labour. These are the things, beloved, that have eternal value. They're showing forth the Christ life in you and as such they attract a reward. You might find Christian speakers, Christian music groups in front of you in the queue carrying huge bales of straw. You won't be judging that on that time. You won't be in a place where you'll be looking at that. But that is the fact of it. That is the fact of it. A lot of people are storing up for themselves wood, hay and stubble because their motive is self-promotion. Paul said a very interesting thing in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. But as for me personally, it's the Amplified, it matters very little to me that I should be put on trial by you on this point and that you or any other human tribunal should investigate and question and cross-question me. I do not even put myself on trial and judge myself. I'm not conscious of anything against myself and feel blameless. But I'm not vindicated and acquitted before God on that account. It's the Lord himself who examines and judges me. So here is a description of someone who is totally at peace with himself. Remember two things, that you might know God and you might know yourself. That is what God's doing in you, that you might know him and you might know yourself. And he says in Galatians, 
that it's not pleasing man but pleasing God who tries his heart. He knows whom he has believed. He's not trying to impress anybody or vindicate himself in any way. He's just written, Moreover, essentially it is required of stewards that a man should be found faithful, proving himself worthy of trust. Again, if you slid into ownership, you just missed it. We are stewards. We are stewards of ourselves, of our bodies, of the gifts, of our children, of our ministry, of whatever we are, we are stewarding it for God. We are the stewards that he left and gave the talents to. We steward, we do not own. And the Corinthian church, love them, were only interested in outward show. They delighted in the wisdom of men and words, the gifts and much excitement. But Paul says these things are not important. What is important is that you be found faithful. And furthermore, he says he cares very little if they judge him, because he knew they were always sitting in judgment on him. But he was so secure. He was unaffected by their criticism. Paul is unmoved. He'd made a self-assessment. He constantly examined his own heart before God and decided if there was anything wrong there, he would leave it to God to judge him and correct him. Okay. Judgment of unbelievers works then. The great white throne judgment. You've been waiting for this one. You have believed unto salvation. You will never stand before the great white throne. I know it's a popular uh, teaching that we will, but you will not, believe me. Because it is the most devastating of all judgments, and it is the last judgment described in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, New American Standard Bible. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. When we see white in the Bible, we know we're looking at purity and absolute righteousness. And upon this throne will be seated the judge, great in power and glory, representing the holiness and righteousness and justice of God. Jesus suffered in such agony because of the awesome reality of what is coming on that day. Two resurrections are spoken of in the book of Revelation. The first is of believers to eternal life. The second of unbelievers. Right at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus on the renewed earth, these people will not have availed themselves of God's offer of free pardon through his Son. Every unbeliever who ever lived will be resurrected on that day and stand before the great white throne. This is a fearful thing. Their end is the lake of fire. 
God means what he says and it is not for us to question. The lake of fire is real no matter what you may believe or may have been taught. Right, so examining ourselves, we've now got enough information to see what we need to be looking for in a critical self-appraisal or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 11, 28-32 everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves that is why so many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. And the word examine here is dokimazo, D-O-K-I-M-A-Z-O, which literally means to scrutinize ourselves. Paul is speaking in the context of taking the bread and the wine in a wrong manner, thus bringing judgment on ourselves in the form of weakness and sickness and sometimes even death. It's part of our responsibility to examine, judge and assess and scrutinise ourselves before we drink of the communion. Otherwise, we drink judgment on ourselves. So when he uses the word judgment in verse 29, it's diacrino, it's the same word as is used in Revelation when Jesus says, I have this against you. That is spelt D-I-A-K-R-I-N-O. So diacrino is, I have this against you, or I question this in you. So if we look to ourselves, he won't have to say to us on this day, I have this against you. When we judge or diacrino ourselves, we look at ourselves and think, Is there, have I got anything against myself here? Lord, show me. can't do this on your own. You have to do this with the Holy Spirit. Ask him to search you. Search me and try me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And make me clean. Psalm 139. So a really sensible prayer here, and one I pray all the time, is deal with me ruthlessly and correct me severely. <sighs> Summation then. If you're still with me, congratulations. By the grace of God and the blood of Jesus we're saved. We're a body, a bride who is being prepared to reign and rule with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the most powerful of all the powerful ones, Elohim, the creator of heaven and earth. We are preparing to enter into the joy of our Lord. Our primary identity is that of children of God, and if children, then sons. We are worthy of special attention and affection from God. We are a nation a people never before seen on the earth. We are a race apart, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, with a temple of the living God. We are not normal people. We have a destiny and a purpose, and we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our place is higher than that which was afforded to Adam. We are seated in heavenly places. He was seated in the earthly Eden. We have everything going for us. Ephesians 1, 4-6 For he chose us in him 
before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. The word will here, his pleasure and will, is his pleasure and desire. This is his desire, beloved. He desires that we have this. We are predestinated, foreordained to work with God. What a privilege we have. Our life in Jesus is not random. It's not a life that has no structure or form or destination. It's intentional because God is intentional towards us. He knows the plans he has for us. Here comes the staircase again. Which one? Jeremiah 29 11 NIV For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. We're in this race, beloved, to win a prize and I've never yet seen contestants on the starting block when the gun goes off for the commencement of the race standing there looking around at the man saying, Did you mean me? Those athletes are off their marks and fast. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 in the message. You've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. Everyone runs. One wins. Run to win. All God good athletes train hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. You're the one that's after gold eternally. I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. I'm staying alert and in top condition. I'm not going to get caught napping, telling everyone else all about it and then missing out myself. So run then, that you might gain the prize. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I'm amazed to find that there was never a time when you didn't love me. You've always loved me. And today, Father, I rise from my failings and my disappointments. I turn from deceptive voices whose promises are impotent and empty. You've planted in me by your spirit fertile seeds of eternal life and strength. I surrender all of myself to you, heart, soul, mind and strength. Show me today, out of your great grace, what that means. Enable me, Father, to love you with all my heart, soul, mind and strength and to run the race to win, knowing that you have set aside the prize. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Next month and in April, we will be looking at the signs of the times with a teaching entitled In the Twinkling of an Eye, where we will explore the question of the catching away of the church, the rapture, and what it means to be the bride of Christ and how we can know that we are in the last days. Incidentally, the two books that I quoted from 
Francis Frangipani's one is already mentioned in the body of this teaching. Early Will I Seek You uh, is a daily journey by David Hazard on the writings of Augustine. And the one that I quoted from uh, R.T. Kendall is When God Says Well Done by R.T. Kendall. Well worth reading about. He goes into everything in a much more full way than I do. So God bless you again. Amen. <laughs>